How many of you have ever had the opportunity to teach a child how to ride a bicycle? How many of you have taught young children, either in elementary school or church Sunday school? Little kids. So you know a little bit about little kids, it sounds like. Would you agree with me that one of the most common characteristics of children is a lack of attention span? I've had several of my own. I think that's true. There may be the odd exception, but most kids lack attention span. And they're not always aware of the dangers around them. So I remember teaching my kids to ride a bike. So let's say I want them to go in that direction. And they're on the bike, and they're learning to pedal and learning to steer. And what do they do? Am I doing it properly? And they wipe out, right? They take their eye off the direction they're supposed to be looking in, and they turn around and they wipe out. Uh, or you may be teaching kids in class and they're supposed to be looking at you and you're right in the middle of a lesson that's really important and they're... That was me. Okay, I think every report card from kindergarten to probably graduate school was Aaron doesn't pay attention in class. Well, not really. I think those ended in grade 8. But definitely in elementary school... That was a problem for me. I was always daydreaming, looking out the window, trying to figure out what other people were doing. My mind was elsewhere. Lack of attention span, not looking ahead, looking to the left or the right, little kids looking behind. And I want to use this as a spiritual analogy for something that is so often true of us. So here we are, the tail end of 2017, the end of the year. And just because it's the end of the year, it's normal for us to look back. We look back on the past 12 months and we start to recycle in our minds the various things that have taken place. Maybe a new job, a loss of a job, a new friendship, a lost relationship. And we rejoice and we mourn. Some of you are sitting here today and you're like, this was a great year. One of the best years ever. Others of you are so relieved that it's over. And you're hoping 2018 will be different. But isn't it interesting during the season of the year, which is all about the end of things, we have put this event called Christmas, which marks a new beginning. Isn't that kind of interesting? If you think about the calendar, it's the end of the year, but we're here today and we're celebrating a new beginning. And that new beginning ultimately led to a Savior sacrificing himself for us, which offered us a new beginning, a new start. So if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you've been born again. You've been regenerated. You are looking forward to eternity. And that is all because of this new beginning which started in a manger so many, so many years ago. So it's okay, of course, brothers and sisters, for us to look back and to consider where we've come from. But while we acknowledge the past, we don't need to live there. We shouldn't be living there. God wants us to live in the moment, worshiping him, rejoicing with him for what he's done, and looking ahead to what he has in store for us. So even if the moment's not so good, we look ahead, and we have something called the assurance of eternal life. And that's because of the Lord Jesus so I want to just encourage us to be looking ahead. But in order to look ahead, we do have to look back. I want to take us back into the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, 
we're going to look at five incredible prophecies, five incredible prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. That's the past. But here's the present and the future. Five incredible prophecies Jesus fulfilled and why it matters now and why it is going to affect your eternity. Now, as we look at these passages, they're all prophetic in nature. So let me just teach you a little bit about prophecy. Prophecy is often thought of as a prophet says something and predicts that something's going to happen. And at some singular point in the future, bing, it's fulfilled. End of the prophecy. And you may have been taught that, that prophecy is about someone predicting something that's going to happen, a one-time event in the future, and it happens, and that's it. But as I taught you a couple weeks ago, when we were in the Gospel of Mark, one of the interesting things about biblical prophecy is that it's often cyclical. So the prophet gives us a word from the Lord. And there may be partial fulfillment of that prophecy, maybe once, maybe twice, maybe multiple times, before the final and ultimate fulfillment of that prophecy comes about. Sometimes it's just one prophetic word, one prophetic event. Other times there's a cycle to it, there's a trending to it, there's a patterning to it. Now I remind us of that because some of the messianic prophecies we're going to look at today did find partial fulfillment before Jesus, but never full fulfillment before Jesus. Jesus is the final culmination of all of these five prophetic passages. He's the zenith event to the trends that we see. So we're going to start off in Isaiah chapter 9. Now to give, it, give you a little bit of a setting, we're talking about the 8th century BC. It's a long time ago. And many centuries before Jesus Christ. But in Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6, here's prophecy number 1. We read these words, familiar to many. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Hit the pause button. This prophecy is full of promise and hope. What makes it interesting, maybe even a little strange from a human perspective, is that first thing we read here is it's going to be tied to a child. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Now normally, I mean, we love kids. I love children. Susie and I have five of our own. They're not really little anymore. But I love children. My niece and all kinds of my nephews were over last night. And they're much younger. And I just love spending time with them, playing around with them and teasing them. I, I love those, those years, that, that, those kind of preschool and elementary school years. You love being around kids. But when you think of receiving, you don't normally think of children. Children take. They take your money. They take your time. They take your sleep. They take your health. They even take your hair. They take. So normally when you're thinking about, I got a need in my life, and who's going to fulfill it, I don't think, oh, it's going to be a little kid that's going to fulfill that need. But here we're introduced 
to a hope-filled passage, and the bringer of the hope that we need is a little child. For to us a son is born, a child is born, to us a son is given, and here's what he does for us. And the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So here it is. Jesus is God manifest to us. In Jesus, as this prophecy predicted, God would come our way because we like to run away from him. We're rebels. We're sinners. We're trying to get away from God. The prophet predicts that God would come our way in Jesus. And look at all the things he does for us. He's called the one that governs us. This would have been in stark contrast to the incompetent 7th century Israeli king, Ahab, who was ruling during Isaiah's day, who kind of had mucked everything up. The government is going to be upon this Messiah's shoulders. He's going to govern. Now the cool thing about Jesus is that Jesus always governs benevolently. I don't think there's any parent in this room. There's no boss. There's never been a mayor, a premier, a prime minister, a president, a king, or a queen that could in all honestly stand before any group of people and say, every inclination of my heart has always been to rule benevolently. There's always a little bit of selfishness in there. Propping up your own ego or seeking your own gain, whatever it might be. But this one that would come to govern, governs benevolently and righteously. He's also called the counselor, meaning that he will deliver wise words and careful guidance in a confusing world. Our world is incredibly confused if you haven't noticed that by now. But Jesus brings clarity. The writer John calls him the truth, the logos. The one that would come from God and bring us the word of God. You never go go wrong listening to Jesus. He's a wonderful counselor. He always guides us properly. He's also called mighty God. Now there are some slippery theologians that don't like the idea of the divinity of Christ. And so they like to translate this as, well, he's just God-like. No. He's the mighty God. This is one of the earliest references to the divinity of the Messiah. There's another one I'll introduce you to later. But Jesus Christ is unquestionably framed up in both testaments as being not only fully man, but also fully God. And to deny that is to deny the clear testimony of Scripture. And of course, him being divinity has massive implications. He can secure our salvation. He can offer forgiveness. He can be worshipped as he was and is and has been this morning. And then he is described as father. Now this is not a passage of the Bible that is meant to confuse our doctrine of the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity states that Jesus Christ, the Father, and the Holy Spirit are three persons who eternally exist In one essence, Jesus is not the Father. The Father is not the Holy Spirit. 
The Holy Spirit is not Jesus. They're three distinct persons in one essence. In this passage, it refers to Jesus as Father because it's referring to his role in relationship to the people that he's governing. So, there's no problem with us saying that at times Jesus dons the mantle of a father, just as the Holy Spirit dons the mantle of a father. And what does a father do? A father teaches, a father defends, a father protects, a father corrects. These are all things that the Messiah would do, as Isaiah prophesied, protecting his children. And we're also told that he brings peace. The UN's been trying to do that for a long time now and has failed. That's not a slight on the UN because we all fail at that. We don't have the capacity to bring peace into a broken world. We pray for it. We try to be peace-loving people, but I don't have the capacity to bring peace into your life or into this world, and nor do you. But Jesus brought eternal peace immediately in his death, burial, and resurrection. And so, while we wait for the final installment and the end of all things, where there will be peace in the universe, even in the here and now, you can have peace even in tumultuous circumstances if you have Christ in you. Through Christ, you learn who you are. You learn what your mission is. You learn what your priorities are. You can have peace in this life through Jesus Christ. And he brings it. So, earlier on today, I acknowledged that some of you have had a difficult year. But there are some of you that have had an incredibly difficult year, but you've never been at greater peace. People are like, how do you do that? How is that possible? Because Jesus is living large in your life. And that's proof of Jesus' capacity to bring peace to our world. So here we are at Christmas. We're not here to celebrate a myth. But we're here to celebrate God who has set foot on this planet and who walked with us. And that means, here's the take home, you have access to hope. You have access to blessing. And you have all the reason in the world to offer up thanksgiving to the Lord. So that's prophecy number one. The second one, I'm going to go over to Zechariah. We're now in the 6th century BC. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. This was a prophecy giving, given to a discouraged people. And God, in this setting, in this time of great discouragement, spoke these words to them. Notice how emotional they are. Rejoice greatly. How do I do that? Things aren't good. It says, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Didn't hear it the first time, so I'll repeat it. Sound, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. The first phrase and the second phrase are parallels. Rejoice greatly means to shout aloud. Daughter of Zion means daughter of Jerusalem. In reference to the holy, sacred capital city. Behold, why should I rejoice? Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous. And having salvation is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. The prophecy is this, that Jesus will come as our king sent to restore and rule. Sent to restore and rule. 
Notice that he's righteous, again, benevolent, holy. Really all the ailments of our world can be traced back to some event or series of events that are unrighteous and evil. But this king is righteous, doesn't abuse his subjects. He's a good king. And he's coming to town on a donkey. This image of a victorious, righteous king marching into town would have not been unusual for the readers of Zechariah's day. So when the kings went out to war in the spring, if they won, and supposing they won, they'd come back and they'd come into town on a big war horse and the people would cheer and celebrate. This, this image was very familiar to them. But what makes the image of the righteous Messiah unique and different is what he's riding. This is the height of a donkey. This is the height of a horse. Which one's more majestic? Which one speaks more of earthly power? Horse, right? The war horse. Jesus comes into the capital city. We read about this in Matthew chapter 21, the triumphant entry. And everything about what he's doing looks very much like a king. But he rides on a donkey. And what that communicates is this king doesn't need to rely on earthly gimmicks to communicate his power to anybody. He doesn't need the help of a horse to highlight his power. He could very much ride on one of those miniature ones if they'd have been around at the time. That would have been fine too. So here we have a king, but what kind of king is he? Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. Baby Jesus grew to fulfill this prophecy when he entered Jerusalem and laid claim to the kingship of Israel. And everybody knew that that's what he was doing. And his friends applauded him for it. And his foes condemned him for it. Earthly rulers are fearful. They need horses and palaces and chariots and henchmen to prop them up. Jesus didn't need any of that. But he was unambiguous about who he was. He was the king. Earthly kings need honor appeasement, either ego massaged. Jesus is content to declare his kingship over you because he's holy, because he's pure, and he will rule you in goodness and love. Are you letting him rule you in goodness and love? Third prophecy is found in Micah. We're back into the 8th century, Micah chapter 5. Micah chapter 5, verse 2 this refers to a particular location where the Messiah would come from, and, and it is very telling. There's something special about the location that's identified here. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. What made Bethlehem special? It wasn't special. Keep that in mind. It wasn't special. You're too little among the clans of Judah, 
From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So it identifies the location of Jesus' birth, but the birth location that is identified actually illustrates that his power is from above. If people want to be movers and shakers in society, they don't stay in little towns. They move to big cities. Because they know that big cities provide opportunities. Nobody knows the little cities on a map, but they all know the big cities. But this Messiah is born in a little city. Now, it was an important city in the sense that it was the city of David. And automatically, the ancient people would have drawn a connection between Jesus as the Davidic Messiah and David, their king, from Bethlehem many centuries earlier. It would have tied Jesus, this unlikely candidate for kingship, to David. David was actually an unlikely candidate for kingship. Why was he an unlikely candidate for kingship? Remember when Samuel came to try to find out which one of Jesse's sons should be the next king? Imagine this happening to you. And Samuel shows up and he says to Jesse, I want you to bring all your sons out. I'm going to find out which one of them is the next king. And he goes down the list, not this guy, it's not this guy, it's not this guy, it's not this guy, and so forth. And he's like, well, don't you have another one? Oh, I, I got David. He's out in the field tending to the flocks. He's like, well, bring him in. Now, you've read the story before, I suspect, but just think about this from the angle of self-esteem. So I have five children. And you're like, hey, I'd like to, I'd like to meet your five children, Aaron. And I, I bring four to you. I'm like, well, these are really the only ones that count. These are the only ones I really care about. I, I'm really not interested in you meeting the other child. Like, cares about the fifth child that would kind of do a little damage i would think but that's kind of how david was treated oh i well i do have one more but really you you want to see the pipsqueak really i, I don't know no bring him in he's the man he becomes the king totally unlikely jesus stands in his place as the unlikely messianic ruler of Israel. So the ancient reader then hears this, that the promises made to David still stand in Christ. As unlikely as they were for David to be fulfilled, they were. Those promises still stand in Christ. It is God then that authenticates Jesus' power, not the place of his birth, this tiny little town. And by the way, the same is true of us. Your power, your spiritual power, doesn't come from your circumstances. It just doesn't. Any spiritual power that you have comes from God. Does it come from your position in the church or in society? Does it come from your dashing good looks? Although many of you are dressed up today for church. It's not what it comes from. It doesn't come from wherever you land on the social ladder. Does it come from that? It comes from the Lord, living large in your life. So that's number three. Number four, we're back to Isaiah, 8th century. 
One of the most famous passages is Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. So here we have a supernatural birth that offers victory over sin. Back to our definition of prophecy. Prophecy is not just one, one thing is said and at a later futuristic date it's fulfilled. Prophecy often runs in cycles. There's partial fulfillment. There's hints that God is staying true to his promises. There's reminders taking place that what God has said will come true. So Isaiah chapter 7, the context is that the writer Isaiah is seeking to offer words of promise and hope to the, Jew, to the Jewish nation during difficult times under the reign primarily of Ahaz. They need a sign from God. Is God going to deliver us? Or is this, are our lousy circumstances going to continue on and on and on and on and on? So into that context, we have Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. Look at the passage. It says, behold the, what's the next word? Virgin. We need to park on this word, this term, and understand it a little bit. So here we have the Hebrew word Elma. So in English letters, A-L-M-A-H. The Hebrew word Elma. And this word refers to a young woman of marriable age. A young woman of marriable age. Very important for us to lock that one down. Modern readers look at the word, and they're like, well, it just means a young woman of marriable age. It could refer to a virgin or a non-virgin. What's the problem with that? Well, automatically, they are interpreting the text through our culture. Because in our culture, void of morals as it is, secular as it is, we no longer draw an equal sign between unmarried and virgin, do we? Because there's a lot of people that are unmarried that aren't virgins. And you're allowed to do that in our culture. There's nothing in law that says you have to stay chaste before you get married. So there's lots and lots of people in our culture, young women and young men alike, that are not married, but they're not virgins. Now, seven centuries before Christ, eight centuries before Christ, and for many centuries after Christ, there was an equal sign between unmarried and virgin. And in fact, if you were caught being unmarried and having sexual intercourse with someone that's not your spouse, well, you'd be stoned to death certainly even up to Jesus' day. So for this reason, if you fast forward from the 8th century right into the 3rd century B.C., a bunch of Jews had moved down to Alexandria, Egypt. The king thought it would be a really good idea, the king of Egypt, to take the Hebrew Bible, including this passage, and translate it into Greek, because that's what everybody was speaking. So they did that. It took a little while. It's finished around 165 B.C., 
And when they finished it, if you open up this book, which we now call the Septuagint, and you look at the word Alma, guess what word the Greeks used to translate it? They used the word Parthenos. And that word, unequivocally in Greek, is even more specific to a virgin. So now we know what the people before Christ, how they would have read this passage. They would have read this passage as a virgin. So the skeptics will say, well, I'm not convinced because if you read forward in Isaiah, a chapter or so, it says there that uh, Isaiah, the guy writing this, went into his wife, the prophetess, went into her. What do you think that's a euphemism for? Sexual intercourse. Went in to be with her and she conceived and bore a child. His name was Mahar Shalal Hashbaz. How's that for a name? You can add that to your list of biblical names to name your next son. But I doubt that many of you will pick up on the offer. I don't know of anybody that's ever been named that. It's probably never made the top 10 list in any baby names book in any culture at any time for what you would want to name your son. But because Maharshalal Hashbaz was born of a godly man, a prophet, and a godly woman, a prophetess, he was a down payment or a partial fulfillment of this ultimate prophecy which was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So, rather than saying, ah, it doesn't mean a virgin, it just refers to a young woman, Isaiah's wife fit the role, the prophecy was fulfilled, end of story. No, we understand that Maharshalal Hashbaz was a godly man. He was a demonstration that God was still with his people, but he was Emmanuel with a small I. Or really, he was an Emmanuel in the sense of being an adjective of it. But then you get into the Gospel of Matthew. And in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, as Matthew finishes Jesus' genealogy, what do you read in, chapter, in, in verse 23? You read in verse 23 that... Jesus' birth from a virgin was actually the fulfillment of Isaiah 7.14. And the writer writes it out again to make it very clear that Jesus was the ultimate and final fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. And Jesus one-ups, two-ups actually, Maharshalal Hashbaz, in that A... He's born of a virgin, so he fully fulfills the prophecy. And B, he is Emmanuel. He is God with us. Fully God and fully man. Some of you are like, who cares? Didn't need a history lesson, don't care about language. What difference does it make? This is just theology. Why are we even talking about this? Actually, it matters. It matters more than almost anything you've ever heard in your life. Here's why the virgin birth of Jesus Christ matters. In Romans chapter 5, verse 12, it reintroduces us to the first man ever created, Adam. And it says, just as sin entered the world through Adam, pause, that means you're a sinner because of Adam. That means you're damned because of Adam. That means you're condemned because of Adam because every one of us come from Adam. Like, well, I thought I just, I thought I was a sinner because I sin. No, you're a sinner because you sin, but you're also 
a sinner because you're a sinner. David wrote in the Psalms, in sin, my mother conceived me. From the time of conception, you're a sinner. And that is why, and that explains why, the statistics on human sinfulness are rather impressive. 100% of people sin. Because we all come from Adam. So that's the bad news. And now I'm going to take you to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 45. Thus it is written, the first Adam, that's the one married to Eve, became a living being. The last Adam, that's not the last guy that will ever be born on the planet whose parents name him Adam. That's Jesus. He's the second Adam. The last Adam becomes a life-giving spirit. So while we were damned in Adam, we are delivered in Christ. Why are we delivered in Christ? Because Christ is unlike anybody that has ever walked the planet. He is 100% fully God. And as God, he not only introduces us to morality and the characteristics of God, but he also has the capacity to forgive. At the same time, he's fully human, born of a human mother. But we don't inherit the sin nature through our mothers. We inherit them through our fathers who stand in the line of Adams to us. So he's fully human, but he doesn't inherit Adam's sin. And so as the second Adam, he lives among us, lives a perfect life, never sins, and then dies in our place on our behalf. So if you don't have the doctrine of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, you don't have a sinless Savior. And if you don't have a sinless Savior, you don't have a Savior. And if you don't have a Savior, you're damned for all of eternity. So the virgin birth of Jesus Christ is a necessary doctrine. We defend it, we preach it, we teach it. It's not like, well, just something cool about Jesus. Something neat on his resume. It's necessary for our salvation in the broader teaching of Christian scripture. And then we're going to go to one more. We're back to Isaiah. Isaiah has a lot to say about the Messiah. And we're going to find our way to chapter 53, verses 5 to 7. Speaking of the one who had come. And he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that's being led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before it shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Church, look at verse 6 again. A couple glaring words. Everyone, that's in the middle of the verse. And then at the end, the iniquity of us all. How many people are included in the all? The everyone. Everyone. So you're in there. So here we have Jesus, the Messiah. This is a prophecy of what he would do. The descriptions match his crucifixion on the cross. 
He's doing something for you. So I'm going to reintroduce to you a doctrine that you may not have heard about for a long time. Maybe some of you have never heard it before. It's kind of old school language. And far be it from a modern preacher to ever draw from the past. Old language. You know, far be it from the modern preacher that wants to reach the modern audience to ever use a word more than two syllables long. I'm going to break those rules. I'm going to introduce you to an incredibly important doctrine. Penal substitutionary atonement. Penal substitutionary atonement. It is a classic biblical Protestant doctrine. And it is an incredibly important doctrine. It's been under attack since the time of Christ. And it's under attack again, even by some that claim to be evangelicals in our culture today. Penal substitutionary atonement. You need to memorize it. You need to know it. You need to understand what it means. Penal refers to penalty. And the idea here in this classic doctrine is that Jesus Christ was penalized. He was punished in some way, shape, or form. Substitutionary means he did it for someone else. He became someone else's substitute. He was doing something not for himself, not to pay for his crimes, because we all know behind the scenes he was innocent. He was paying for someone else's crimes. And atonement refers to the idea of God covering or healing us of our sin. Now, do you think there's any verse in the Bible, any passage in the Bible, from which we could determine if penal substitutionary atonement is in fact biblical or man-made? Yeah, it's the one we're in. Every one of those words stands true if this passage stands true. So look at penalty words. You see any penalty words there? Just look at the passage. Jesus, was he penalized at all? Here's some that I'm seeing. Pierced, there's one. He was pierced. Crushed, there's another. Uh, verse 5, he was wounded. I mean, that's three just in one verse. Verse 6, the Lord laid something on him. It's called iniquity. He was oppressed. Verse 7, he was afflicted. He is it's kind of like a lamb that's being led to the slaughter. There's lots of words in there that speak of Jesus being punished. So the first word's a biblical word. How about the second word? Any words in there that indicate that he was the substitute? Was he dying for himself? Does it say he was dying for himself there? Any language in there that suggests he's maybe doing this for somebody else? Yeah. Verse 5, our. Verse 5, our. Verse 5, we. Clearly this passage teaches that the Messiah is not dying for himself. He's dying for us. How about atonement? Anything in there that speaks of um, healing or benefit or covering? Yeah. Look at verse 6. What does it say there? Verse 5, actually. With his wounds, we are healed. We didn't even do anything to be healed. He, he did all the work. He put all the effort in. So Jesus is not some moral example, and that's it. His sacrifice involved penal substitutionary atonement. 
We can't lose that one. That's a biblical doctrine. The whole system falls apart if Jesus did not accomplish something for us that we were unable to accomplish for ourselves. It's undeniable. And anybody that teaches otherwise is a false teacher. This is biblical theology. So church, as we've looked at these five passages, we have been reintroduced to a Savior who is God with us, who is our King, whose power comes from on high. It doesn't come from other people. It comes from on high. Who is victorious and who atones for sin. Who would die in our place. So again, the scene of the manger, the scene of the angels and the shepherd, really important, but they're only part of the story. Without Easter, Christmas really doesn't mean a whole lot. Jesus, the child, was born to die. And because he did, we have something in the present. What do we have? We have salvation. We have hope. We have confidence. And we can look ahead, and we can know without question that if we're trusting in him, we will be in heaven one day. Because it doesn't rely upon me. It's me doing the crime, him doing the time. It's me being the sinner, him being the savior. It's me being damned. It's him delivering me from damnation. So I can get out of bed tomorrow and I can celebrate Christmas and I can celebrate the birth of Christ in the moment, but I can look ahead with great joy and great assurance and great enthusiasm that even if it turns out to be a lousy day, even if it turns out to be my last day, that I have the hope and security of a Savior that loved me, that rules me, and that died for me. May you be encouraged in here and in here by these words, and may they affect and inform the way you live your life in the coming days. 